the best short films for lifelong learning, recommended by teachers for teachers. This is Short Films Teachers Love, with your host, Richard Lee. I'm very pleased to invite today's guest onto the show because he's from the University of Melbourne. We've had guests from primary and secondary level before, but this is the first person from the tertiary level. This man is an associate professor from the School of Culture and Communications and has a fascinating background in theatre production, having spent 17 years in Singapore after growing up in the UK. Paul Ray, welcome to Short Films Teachers Love. Thank you. Hi. And, and so the first thing I wanted to ask is this cross-continental background of yours. Can you give me a short synopsis of how that all happened? Um, uh, it's entirely accidental, as these things often are. Um, uh, I studied drama in the UK at university in Bristol and uh, fell in love with a Singaporean and so moved there. And uh, we set about making theatre and um, I carried on doing my further studies and um, ended up uh, running a theatre company and teaching at the National University of Singapore. And then just a couple of years ago in 2014, I moved here to Melbourne. What drew you to Melbourne then? Uh, it was time for a change. And um, uh, Melbourne uh, is somewhere that's not too far away from Singapore and Southeast Asia, where my daughters are, are now from and um but of course there's also a bit of a change uh, of scene and scenery and weather so it was that really yeah okay now the school of communication and, and culture and communication at melbourne uni um that's a it's a fascinating range of topics to deal with what sort of courses do you offer there yeah, the school has a, a wide-ranging set of programs. I teach theatre studies within the English and theatre studies program, and then there are a number of other programs in creative writing, media and communications, Indigenous studies, cultural studies, screen studies, and so on. So uh, that's quite varied. And then at the master's level, we offer masters in more specialised or vocational uh, options like marketing communications and uh, publishing, and then research degrees uh, across the whole school as well. So yes, it's very varied. Yeah. What fascinates me, and we'll we'll get to the films very shortly. But what fasc fascinates me, and why I love doing this podcast, is that right across what we could call the the great universal tree of knowledge, if you like, short films have a place. So right at the base of sort of generalist primary school to the very you know tips of the little niche twigs of, of university um, knowledge that we we go down. So what generally can you say before we get into the films? Can can we do with films at the at the tertiary level? In other words, what value are they to you in your teaching and learning with students? There's a few different reasons that I use short films. I, I, I'm sure they're the some of them are the same as the reasons my colleagues use them, but they probably have other reasons too. One is it's perhaps a bit unexpected, really, but um, uh, obviously at university. Uh, one's contact hours with students is quite limited. Um, uh, my lectures are 50 minutes long. Tutorials can be a bit more luxurious at an hour and a half. But that's basically all the contact time that I'd have with a student on a particular subject per week. So in a sense, every, every second counts. And um, short films are invaluable teaching resources 
both because they are short uh, and uh, and therefore compressed and uh, able to encapsulate um, an idea or a provocation um, very effectively and efficiently. Um, but maybe if that sounds a little philistine, I'd add that uh, I am often drawn to short films that do at least double duty, that, they, that they're often doing more than one thing at the same time. Uh, they're not simply there uh, as kind of informational kind of clips, but rather they um, enact the kinds of information that they're also communicating. And if that sounds a bit obscure, then maybe it will become clearer as this conversation goes on. It definitely will, having, having watched the ones that you've recommended. Well, let's, uh, let's get into the first short film that you've chosen, and it's called Catastrophe, written by Samuel Beckett. Like the look of him? So-so. Why the plinth? To let the stalls see the feet. Why the hat? To help hide the face. Why the gun? To have him all black. What is he on underneath? Say it. His night attire. Colour? Ash. Light. You said it's a play about power and a play about theatre. And it, and it's so true as I was watching, I was thinking, yeah, it's, it's definitely about both of those. Um, in terms of power, what I found interesting was it's uh, there's this sort of clear delineation between, you know, the top as, as the boss, the theatre director, played by Harold Pinter, the second in the rung of power as the stage director, Rebecca Pigeon played that. Uh, and last and very much the least is the actor, the poor bloke on the stage who is being lit and has no lines. And we really only see him with a little bit of light on his eyes at the end. And it leads me to ask the question, you know, who is in power? You know, and on the night of a performance, we think it's the actor, but here it's reversed. And, and perhaps that, that's how it actually is in theatre, the one who call the shots, um, which, you know, sort of trickles down to the actors. But on the night, it's sort of all about the actors. And it's, it's you know, to me, I started thinking about these fascinating power relationships in theatre and and why people like you study it because the director does have power but you know it goes both ways what a fascinating study i mean am i kind of onto something here could i get a course in your you know at melbourne uni with you (laughs) (laughs) yes that's that's great thank you for that maybe i I will i will add your clip into the next time i show this film i shall also have a brief explanation from you uh Yes, uh, you're absolutely right. It's a it's a play that's simultaneously about theatre and um, about it would appear politics of one sort or another. It's about power and it's about oppression. And the reason that I use this film to teach with, in addition to it being uh, very short and sort of kind of small but perfectly formed, as it were is because it's actually one of Samuel Beckett's most accessible plays. Beckett uh, has a reputation for having written plays like Waiting for Godot, in which famously one critic said, nothing happens twice. (laughs) And um, uh, uh, by comparison with with a lot of his other plays, which seem to lack even the kinds of contexts that you've identified here, this one seems to be about something in a way that is um, more immediately um, comprehensible. Although that's not to say that it's only about one thing. It's, it's about several things. Um, 
the language works in a very distinctive way. There's that very Beckettian combination of great precision, especially around the selection of particular words, particular actions, and then these strange ambiguities and sort of vaguenesses. And it's really in, sort of in between the two, uh, or maybe in a tension between the two, that the effect of, of the film and of the play uh, is felt. Um, it encourages students to think about theatre as a place where power is enacted, either um, in the kind of literal sense that there's a, there is always a power dynamic in the creation of theatre. It's not always the case that the director is entirely in control, but of course, you know, they can have that reputation. Um, uh, but also that it brings our attention to the ways in which power may be theatricalized or spectacularized elsewhere in our societies. And, and, and the fascinating thing is, too, we're adding another layer because it's a film with its own crew and director and producer and the writer is still the same. But, you know, you're adding that other, that other layer, which, um, you know, it's, it's actually a beautiful piece of filmmaking as well. You know, it's wonderfully lit and it's, you know, the construction of where everyone is. So how, how I guess my other question is, you know, how would it have looked as a play? So what did, what did Beckett do with it originally? So this is another um, complication, but also uh, intriguing factor in, in using this film to teach, which is that I teach it in the context of a, of a subject called the theatre experience. This film is a particularly interesting um, case study to help think about theatre and its relation to film, because, as you say, in adapting the script for film, some changes have had to be made. So, for example, in the theatre production of this uh, of catastrophe, the audience is very directly implicated in those power dynamics that you mentioned, because they are, you know, witnesses to this spectacle, to the process of um, oppression by which the director prepares um, prepares a performance for them then to watch. Um, but in turn, they are then fixed by the gaze of the character that is called the protagonist um, at the end of the performance. And that tiny moment, which could well be, I think we're invited to presume it is a moment of resistance, a moment where that protagonist who seems to have been entirely um, uh, uh, controlled by the theatrical apparatus, as it were, looks back and um, acts. Finally, the protagonist makes good on their on their name, as it were. In the film, that's much harder to do. They've made some interesting choices there. We see uh, the director um, standing in what is effectively the auditorium, looking back upon the stage. And of course, as viewers, we sit outside that scenario. And then at the very end, that key moment where the um, protagonist, in this case, as you mentioned, played by one of the most famous British actors of the 20th century in one of his very final roles, John Gilgood, um, looks up, but he doesn't look directly at the camera. He looks out and we see the gaze from the side. And it's, it's, it's that kind of thing, which is like a very subtle difference uh, and yet makes all the difference, as it were. What is the difference between fit being fixed by the gaze of this protagonist in the theatre and observing that gaze 
slightly, you know, adjacently uh, on camera. Mm-hmm. There's lots of, and you've opened up a whole range of, you know, questions that I have about this this play as it was, and, and Beckett himself, and all sorts of things. So, um, but because we have to move on to others, I just want to wrap up by saying. Um, you know, is there, uh, like, where does it fit in your course? So are you expecting this to then launch? You know, do you want students then to ask lots of questions about who Beckett was or do they come with the knowledge of him or where does it sort of fit and what kind of questions and, and discussions do you get going because of this short film? In this particular uh, course, um, I use it in a, in, a, in a lecture or a session about how we make meaning out of theatre or where meaning resides in the theatre. And, and so, um, I mean, there are many other things to be said about this film and about this play, but because it's this sort of jewel-like little kind of case study, it, we're able to look at the script, which is just four or five pages long, to uh, look at this adaptation, and then also look back at the initial context. Because one thing that I haven't mentioned is, unlike many other of Beckett's plays, this play was first performed um, in Avignon in the early 80s, um, while Václav Havel, the playwright and subsequently president of Czechoslovakia and then the Czech Republic, was in detention and the play was dedicated to him. So it also has this quite explicit uh, political agenda, historically speaking. And so it also opens up our attention beyond focusing on the script this slightly sort of bureaucratic language mixed with this odd poetry beyond those questions of the creative decision-making on the part of the director, David Mamet himself, a, a very well-known uh, playwright, uh, to, to the broader kind of social um, context within which this play, out of which it emerges, and perhaps within into which it still feeds. And also, I think, was it this one that you said you use it um, in attracting students on open days and things like that, or was that another film? This was, that was no, it. no, I, it's true. I, I also I do a sort of just a half-hour workshop when we have the big University of Melbourne open day and um, uh, students who are interested in finding out about the different um, majors that we offer come often with their parents to do to, to just find out what theatre studies involves. And again, this is a good example because we're able in in a very short space of time to work through examining the script as we might do in a more English you know in a, in a sort of literary studies context towards thinking about how we might ourselves uh, stage it um, if we were um, uh, uh, examining it in a sort of more practical workshop based context and then on to looking at the film as a way of considering some of the ways in which um, particular artists interpreted that play. Mm. Fantastic. All right. Let's move on to the next film. What is live art? What is live art? Well, at its most fundamental, live art is when an artist chooses to make work directly in front of the audience in space and time. So instead of making an object or an environment, a painting, for example, and leaving it for the audience to encounter in their own time, live art comes into being at the actual moment of encounter between the artist and spectator. A great way to teach, to actually be the lesson. I think, I think we should start by at least saying there may be a need for a spoiler alert here because you'll only ever see it the first time the first time. 
<laughs> and um, and I suggest we try and talk about it without giving away the. Okay. <laughs> and because uh, although you say you'll only see it once, one of the interesting things about it is once you have seen it once, you almost immediately want to go back and watch it again. <laughs> That's right, and and it made me think. You know, even in this. And this, as a piece of art, you know, I, I like to think of always choosing films that have their own artistic merit. And one of my good sort of rules of thumb is, you know, if you want to go back and watch it several times and each time you get to see something new out of it, it's kind of worthy art in my, my sort of simple, you know, thumbnail of that idea. But but this one, you really can only do that twice. And yet, every time you go back, I think you do discover more things. Because on my second viewing, um, I kept seeing new people, you know, going, oh, what about them? Why did they respond that way? But I wanted to, yeah, l- launch in to ask, how do, how do you use this? Um, again, as I said before, it's 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 great for teaching because it does several things simultaneously. In, in fact, it does it does them in an almost exemplary fashion, which is to say that it it is a saying that is also a doing. It it does what it is about. Um, so uh, let me see if I can explain it without giving away the ending. Basically. Uh, 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 a, a man dressed in a suit, looking a little bit like a news reporter, gives a five-minute lecture or speech um, addressing the question, what is live art? Which is, um, uh, I'm not going to answer it in, in that much detail, but which is a, a form of um, performance uh, rooted uh, partly in theatre, partly in performance art, partly in the visual arts, um, uh, often uh, visual, commonly seen as experimental. So these are the kinds of things that uh, the artist uh, Joshua Sofer talks about in the course of the five minutes as the camera just sort of gradually um, moves backwards and um, he is revealed to be standing um, on a London street. I think it's Oxford Street. Um, uh, as other people, members of the public, pass by. But the closer you look, the more you realize that there's something else going on, that um, while some members of the public are oblivious to him, increasing numbers have their attention drawn to him. I think that we don't need to give the ending away, but we can say that there is a kind of uh, a rather cheeky reveal at the end. <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> as it were. And, um, uh, and, and what's fascinating is that the... Well, I was about to say audience, but of course, they are, this is where the film is interesting because immediately those kinds of terms become rather complicated. They're not an audience, although they seem to be watching him. So these are the ways in which this is not simply a kind of dry, albeit short lecture about a particular art form. It's, uh, it's a film in which um, gradually uh, what is being described comes to pass it it happens uh, before our very eyes as it were yeah. and and it's interesting you use the word dry i think you know you first say anything oh it's one of those educational things but um 
actually, having watched it, I do want to go back and hear what he has to say, like the content of his speech as well. So it has that kind of reverse sort of drawing power of going, okay, what did he actually say? Because I think what he was talking about was interesting in itself too. Yes, although as you point out, in fact, while we might start, you know, if we're sufficiently earnest and well-meaning by trying to pay attention to what he's saying, in fact, I find, and I I think uh, often students find too, that it becomes increasingly hard to pay, to concentrate on what he's saying. One final thing that I find fascinating about that piece is that when you do go back and watch it more closely and you have sufficient familiarity with it to be able simultaneously, as it were, to hear what is being said and see what's happening, then you also start to recognize a lot of other very specific kinds of connections in what's going on. So um, if I think of one uh, that I often note, for instance, when uh, the artist starts talking about the plain English movement and this sort of uh, and and language in the context of cultural complexity, it just happens that uh, a couple uh, walk in front of him who appear to be of uh, South Asian origin. Uh, the woman is wearing a very colourful pink sari, <laughs> and um, uh, it, and I can only presume it's a coincidence, but actually. There are a lot of these kinds of coincidences where one, as a viewer, cannot help but make the connection between what's being said and uh, what's happening uh, as the film unfolds. And you wonder whether that's been written in beforehand or, and they're actors or whether it's, yeah, it's just how it's happened. One wonders how many takes it took. Mm-hmm. All right. The last one we're going to talk about is called The Ninth of August. film about Singapore um, is a fascinating documentary because it is a document that records a history of this big day in Singapore, the 9th of August, um, but it also has a bit of a slant on it. And and I started thinking about it in the context of being a filmmaker who makes films for people you get given a bucket of money and then you go and make it but you always make something that you want to make and I and there's always an unspoken contract about that how much you have liberty to do your own thing and how much you just go with what the brief was (laughs) because you don't ever say I'm making this film for me you make it because you're doing it for the person and in this case it was you know it was for what I would imagine is a fairly conservative organisation, the Museum of Singapore. You know, there's nothing that they want to say politically or anything. Um, and yet it feels like Tana's making a statement about the military obsession of this sort of grand new Singapore. 9th of August is a kind of supercut. In a sense, it's a compilation of footage that captures a whole history of national days. And uh, that national day is an opportunity for the nation to present itself to itself and to imagine itself, uh, to give a kind of concentrated aesthetic form to what it means to be, in this case, Singapore. You mentioned that it seems to be uh, a critique of militarism. And 
Uh, I'd say that might say a little more about you than it does about the film. (laughs) Not, of course, because there isn't militarism in the film, uh, but rather because uh, that particular filmmaker, Tan Pin Pin, has a very distinctive kind of take on contemporary Singapore. Um, She was commissioned to create this film by the National Museum of Singapore for a big relaunch that it did, um, as you note. She was commissioned to do that on the basis of having created a whole series of documentaries which took a very kind of curious, kind of unjudgmental attitude towards a lot of the realities of Singapore life, many of which um, do not get uh, an enormous amount of press or play in public discourse in Singapore. Where she makes her intervention most explicitly is not really in um, what she represents, uh, which after all is all footage from the archives, but how she structures it. And so the film begins with a short prologue, which is sort of about representing National Day. It's, it's, it's footage of people with cameras or TV cameras. And then it moves through a structure which pretty much follows the pattern of a National Day. And I'm a bit of an aficionado of Singapore National Days, and I could tell you that this is more or less how it goes, which is to say that first there's a kind of um, there's an orientation around the nation, and so in that sequence, we, f- we see all the presidents of Singapore up to, the, up to the president who was presiding in 2006, President Nathan, uh, stepping out of the motorcade. And we see the military parade. And then in the next sequence, we move from the nation to the state. And we see the arrival of all the prime ministers of, of, of Singapore. And uh, that's a more sort of colorful part of the parade. And then we move to the citizens uh, doing their mass displays, their big kind of um, highly sort of choreographed um, mass dances. And then lastly, we have a perhaps tellingly short section, which is really focused on individuals and it's close-ups of particular people. So if there is any sort of slyness in this film let's not say subversion because i think everyone's in on it as it were um it's through that trajectory from the nation to the individual sure and i didn't mean to say that she was being sly or anything about it but just i guess the mood that i took away from it um you know it starts with sort of the happy uplifting you know everyone's smiling and taking pictures to a lot of the and particularly in the music i found it turned more eerie you know a lot of the rest of it just sounded more dark and menacing <laughs> that was all and that's all i guess i was responding to apart from the fact that you know you just see shot after shot of you know just organized people you know just rows and precision and you know just that spectacle of how people get organized when they're in large masses and putting on a display so perhaps that's where i'm coming from but as you say i think it i I, we we all throw in our own um you know biases when we watch anything don't we no i think i i I think if it's not specifically focused on the military nevertheless one of the one of the observations that one can make as one watches that film is Mm is the ways in which bodies, 
become disciplined, as it were, in, in the broadest sense, I suppose, into into particular patterns, into particular gestures and movements, and that this happens transgenerationally. That uh, and uh, although it's perhaps particularly acute in Singapore, in part because it's had such a stable political life since independence the same party has been in power and therefore there haven't been very much variations in how this kind of activity happens we've been talking a lot about the 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 filming side of it but of course this is you know i'm curious in your context and you talk about using it in a lecture on mass performance so what what other uh, sort of final summarizing comments would you add about you know how it how it educates or you know enlightens your students about what a mass performance is i used this film in um a series of lectures on what we have come to call performance studies it's it's a kind of expanded version of theater studies or at least that's one way of putting it um if in in theater studies we conventionally focus on those events that present them to us present themselves to us as theatre, often, but of course not always, in a theatre, then performance studies is a way of examining a wide range of other kinds of um, events um, and practices in the wider society that have a performative dimension. Um, Mass performance is by no means the most sort of uh, uh, far out we go. I mean, we we, uh, can come around, for instance, to talking about performance in everyday life. Um, but uh, mass performance allows us to take a few steps away from the theatre and ask ourselves, what can we learn about these kinds of events with what we know about the theatre? But one of the reasons I also wanted to introduce some of the material from Singapore and also some discussion, for instance, of the China Olympics, uh, the Beijing Olympics, is because we have many students who are from the Asian region and um, having uh, spent a long time in Singapore and having some knowledge of Asian performance cultures, uh, one of my aims has been to introduce more material into the into the curriculum uh, that represents or reflects that region. So it's also a, a part of a process of, of exploring cultural diversity in curriculum. Well, we all need to uh, look, for <laughs> look for those examples, don't we? It's good to see. So my final question, and I just ask this of every guest, is um, what is your earliest moving image memory? My uh, a vivid early moving image memory is um, my dad taking me to watch the first Star Wars film we lived in Bahrain at the time, and uh, he was a member of a sort of expatriate club, uh, which sounds fancy, but in that time it wasn't really. <laughs> and so we went, and I just remember sitting uh, out, outdoors in Bahrain. They projected this film onto a sheet, and uh, going by the years, I must have just been four and a half, something like that, and I vividly remember Star Wars. <laughs> Very good. That's uh, that's quite a spectacular way to watch Star Wars on a sheet. 
Thank you so much. It's been uh, it's been fascinating to see how you make use of short films, and and I can see that you know a, a course that you're running would have lots of little things to take away and provoke further thought and and reason to inquire deeper. So thank you for sharing your insights today on my little show called Short Films Teachers Love. You're welcome. Thank you very much for the opportunity to talk about them. Find all the links to this episode on SoundCloud, including other films Paul uses in his course. Join us next week on YouTube for the edited highlights of this conversation.